Welcome to part two of my talk with Lou Ross of Fickle Skateboards. As you heard in part one, Lou thinks about things a lot. And he isn't afraid to say what he's been thinking. The best part about that is that his thinking breeds more thinking, and before you know it, we're all pondering and discussing various elements of skateboard culture. I don't believe in the old Zorlak maxim, shut up and skate. I believe that if you love something enough, you have to talk about it. If you dedicate much of your life to a culture, you absolutely have to speak up when that culture turns in a different direction from what you've known. Because this part is so long, I'll save you any more of my pondering and go straight into the recording of Lou and I. But before I do, I have to say, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Luchascape magazine, blog, or podcast as a whole. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or blog. The podcast should not be viewed as a news source, and explicit language may be used. Nobody would give a crap that I said all that stuff that I said earlier, but I, I, I learned something, David. Do you know what I learned? What did you learn? Is that even, even saying something in a like three clicks deep in a Facebook page can get some pretty pretty high up there people really mad at you. Really. Yeah, I had someone. I had someone who is not. not I mean, I, I don't want to go into it just in case it embarrasses anyone because it's in the Facebook post, Peter. But I had someone get really mad about something I wrote in a reply. You know, in a reply to a comment on a post is like three clicks deep into someone's personal Facebook page, and um, it was ugly. It, it got ugly. I I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, here's a Guy writes, here's a guy who writes for an online publication and he gives a shit what I write on my on a reply on my Facebook page to a comment. I thought that's wow. I mean I'm a dead dog. Who cares what I think? That's what? the thing is if I want to if I want to talk about these things here, then I think everyone who's listening needs to like you know maybe just use a grain of salt. Except that I might be onto something that's a little bigger than a grain of salt too. Well, that's one of the things about so, where everything is so social media based and people just get irate over anything. I, I can't stand to well, look maybe at... maybe they have... Half the time I can't stand to look at my it, it, news feed anymore because somebody's posting some meme that has four words in it that somebody else is getting upset about. And it's like, it's it's a meme. People just you know, spout hate. I, I love my news feed on my Facebook, and I think it's I'm working the algorithm so I get stuff I like. So I make sure I click on anything that's like handcrafted, and I've got a lot of cool stuff on there. But I love people whose politics I disagree with. I love seeing um, politics on both sides of the whatever continuum people use. Um, that just provoke me to think, you know, I love that. But I really love, um, I love when people start to get angry and say things. And you really find out what Americans think like. And it ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. But it, it prepares me for spending another day talking to Americans all day, you know. I was born American, by the way. I am. I know I have a foreign accent, but uh, <laughs> that's just 
that's just New York Hudson Valley that you're hearing there. So. But, uh, yeah. I've, so what do you? You got some questions? You wanna? You want? Ask me a ask me a question or something? Yeah. Well, the first question I was gonna ask you about what was the catalyst to start fickle boards in the first place? What made you decide that this is something you had to do? Yeah, that's a good question. Why did I start fickle boards in the first place? So it's a simple it's a simple story. Um, some people that are listening to this will will have been characters in in the story. Um, if you don't like the way I tell it, um, you should have acted better. What was that quote? I love that quote. <laughs> if you don't like your role in my story, you should have acted better. <laughs> Dude, I don't know, man. There's some very basic, objective things that happen in their role. <laughs> so, okay, it's, it all starts in in like 2005. You know, um, I ruined my life working in churches. I was a I was a Christian believer, and I liked I liked theology, and I liked talking to people, and I liked faith journey sharing, and and I haven't. I, I have a lot of that left over, but I got I got uh, this. I don't know. I would almost say I got misled because um, I wasn't raised that way, and I wound up working in churches, helping to cause people to discuss and explore their beliefs. Okay. And it, they have jobs for that, you know, the young adults minister or youth minister. Or they had me um, one church that I was interviewing for wanted to start a whole wing of ministry for people for people who want to talk about and think about believing before they do it. <laughs> so, so I had this religious background and this, this cultural background of ideas, theology, belief, and it was ruining my life because it was attached to a dysfunctional industry model of community. Sound familiar? You jump from one <laughs> frying pan to another frying pan, huh? Well, believe me, skateboarding is a way less hot frying pan than, than that. Oh, that's really? Stuff Oh my gosh! Because you're like dealing with like some kid in your some kid in your church has been uh, has been accessed by a pedophile, and when you bring in a social worker and you involve the the police, which you should do, Absolutely. that's right. His father punches him in the face, and now you've got an open case with child protection. And then the pastor sits you down. Dude, this happened to me, and says, "We can't have this." And I'm like, you know, like. Motherfucker, are you serious? We can't have this, man. This is life, man. You need to have. So I was having a major conflict in my life where, hey, man, being involved in thinking about life and being a live human being who's going to think about how we live is, is fun and it's good and it's dangerous, which is fun. But I, I can't chain that faith and that experience to to a job description working for people who don't like when it happens. Huh? Hmm. So me and American church religion had to, had to have a little bit of a hiatus and uh, my faith remained intact and does to this day. But, but I, I had to take a hiatus from the industry, man. I don't think I'll be back. And in 2005, you know, I had Mr. Mom, our kids. My wife has a super job working out of an office at our home. Um, she works in foreign exchange, okay. and so I have a criminal background check every year, and I've been able to work freelance for some State Department programs working with kids from countries that end with STAN. Um, I happen to be uh, – I, I speak uh, French and Spanish fluently. I read uh, a ton of uh, a ton of 
languages and uh, and I, I speak chunks of I you know I I'm smart right. I was wired I was wired up smart I was wired for sound and uh, wired for people and that's just my gig so I was working freelance for for a lot of cool stuff um, no I was not a CIA operative <laughs> what? is this a, a rumor fit. or is this I <laughs> I just wanted to to make sure that as people were listening to me talk about working with kids from stand countries, they would, they would make sure not to get the idea that I was some super badass Jack Bauer type. Gotcha. No, a lot oh, of people, you did the a lot martial of, arts and now you're a lot of people think that way about me, uh, but, um, but, uh, I'm, I'm living my life and, uh, I had taken my, my sense of faith and philosophy and theology out of the industry and was just living it, doing Mr. Mom stuff. And darn it, my kids started getting older. You know, right now I've got a 22, a 21, and a 14. When my youngest was about five years old, about 2005, I got approached by a local company, um, a local skateboard brand, and they they introduced you know the the art director introduced me to the owner of the company. Okay. The owner grew up in NorCal, and Total ripper, total family man, totally awesome dude. Um, but he had a real different mind, and he didn't come out to skate in Cincinnati a lot. He really stayed in the background, and I didn't understand why he wouldn't because he was such an amazing, amazing gifted skateboarder. He just had that total danger style. I don't know. You may know. You guys might know Chris Ulander, you know. Oh, yeah. But just, like, lock it up and dump it back in on that coping. You know, when you lock up on the top and you're on the deck and then you dump it back in and you're like, oh, my gosh, she's going to hang up every time. <laughs> they don't. They just gut it out. Well, you, Lander, I, I think he hangs up from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> His knees, they must, he must have hung up a couple of times. Chris, you, Lander, you are one of my heroes. Shout out. Absolutely. So, um, 2005, I get this, uh, I get this invitation, and man, I can't tell you, I, you know, I'm a low-level talent in skateboarding. I really, uh, you know, I really struggle with a lot of, um, a lot of uh, musculoskeletal pain, and uh, my, uh, I struggle with, uh, you know, I struggle with depression, um, and I get a lot of musculoskeletal symptoms from depression, okay. and uh, yeah, I, I don't actually get in such a bad mood as much as I just get really achy. I know that if I went to a doctor, I don't want to. Uh, really mess with it too much, but I could get diagnosed with like fibromyalgia or some bullshit like that. Well, oh, by the way, if you're suffering from that, it is not bullshit. I just, <laughs> it is not, I really, it's I just love your descriptor you for it. Fibromyalgia. I did not intend to say or to, to in any way denigrate. You're not inferring that, that fibromyalgia no. is bullshit. You just, it is not bullshit. I just, <laughs> I just don't. I don't have time for that diagnosis, baby. <laughs> so, so um, I, I take karate classes and try to stay limber. And uh, and it, it's you skated with me. I'm timid. I, I get hurt real bad. And I had to have a pretty big surgery in 2014, so right. I'm pretty I'm pretty But uh, but these guys uh, they didn't want me to ride for them. They wanted me to just work on taking boards to shops. And oh. Thornton, man, this is 2005, and I love, I I have a romantic place in my heart for the skate shop. I think a lot of guys from our era do. You know, the skate shop, you know, coming from 1986, um, the skate shop was a place of wonder and mystery. 
you know, back when boards were shaped differently and one week you're buying an Alva with a tri-tail and the next week, I worked as a kid when I was 15 and 16, I worked on building uh, uh, carpentry um, with one of the the guys from my karate school. He was a black belt and I was a kid and uh, I was a black belt and he, he let me come work with him. And, and so we were building. Uh, and so every week I'd get paid all this money, man. I was 15 years old. And so I just bought... I bought skateboard decks, man. I bought skateboard decks, and um, I was always looking for the durable deck because I would do 15 miles on my board, um, you know, one way on the weekend. Right. And we would go and just skate the spots. There were no parks at all. Yeah, and there so were, you just, were barely any backyard. From spot to spot to spot. Yeah. You just kept skating. Oh, there's a loading dock. Yeah, there was this one loading dock at Monroe Mufflers in, Pekip, in uh, Poughkeepsie, uh, New York. Uh, at Monroe Mufflers, man, there was this one loading dock, and if you could, it was a front side wall ride on the bank. It was a bank next to a wall. You know how they did them, and it wasn't like not us in the uh, in streets on fire when um, when he was doing wall rides where the bank went up to the wall. It was a wall and then a bank. You know, it was really one of the disappointing ones. But <laughs> I could uh, I could I could land front side wall rides. You know, as a, as a 1986, 87, 88, you know, that was a big deal back then. And yeah, it was. I had to, I had, I was one of the guys where they were like, oh, that guy is good, you know, and it didn't take as much back then. No, it did not. <laughs> and and so, um, and I was young and I was jumpy, you know, and I was a little crazy too. And, uh, and so uh, anyway, I bought all these boards and, and the skate shop was this holy place. You know, there was only one skate shop every two hours or so, you know, and, and if you went to another city and you found a skateboard shop, you would walk in, and I know you know, because you and I had it the first day that we met when my son Aaron and I were traveling, we just had camaraderie, you know, Yes. the sense of, of, of friendship, you know, that you're interested in the feeling of skateboarding, and I'm interested in the feeling of skateboarding, and when I met you, you were riding a board that had a 20-inch wheelbase. Yeah, it was a And I was guy. so... It was a you had cut it was it not one that you cut? Yeah, Did that was one of the East Built used to sell the sell the blanks, yeah. which they're out of business now, unfortunately. But I'm sorry to hear that. That we need more we need more East Built type companies around. But anyway, this is about how Fickle started, and it really does. Fickle started in 1986, 87, 88 when I couldn't stop spending my money buying a new board every week to see which ones were more durable and how the concaves because they were so different. You'd buy a Zorlac and it would be pretty flat, man. But the tail would have a big, big kick. You'd buy a Santa Cruz and it would have a giant, like, seven and three-quarter inch long tail on my Malba Santa Cruz, you know, with the monsters on it. And there were gullwing trucks and there were Indy trucks. And then exactly like the Indies, but with a rougher finish, were the Thunder trucks. Yeah. And, you know, you had, yeah, there were the same exact, I loved it. Thunder was the same exact geometry with no shine. That was so cool. I mean, now a Thunder truck is a way different turn than an Indy truck um, and a way different durability than an Indy truck, in my opinion. Um, but uh, long and short of it is that uh, I, I uh, skated from 1986 like uh, until 1992. And in 1992, um, skateboarding had become something I didn't really want to be involved with at a cultural level. I did not get excited to go skateboarding, um, it was a lot of, honestly, uh, I just really did not dig trespassing. I, I 
still don't. I just don't dig it. I don't dig the hooligan factor of trespassing and breaking off car antennas and the bullshit, breaking bottles on things and stuff that was right. going on so much. It was like when a skateboarder, got, I would go to another city and go to the skate shop, and when they took me out to skate, they'd be doing my, you know, just low-level vandalism and stupid, just stupid stuff. And I just, I don't know, man, I was a little older than that. And I was I just, I love sessions and skating and the feeling of it. And I don't want to be around a bunch of goofball, you know, adolescent bullshit. Yeah, there was there was a and, uh, there was a drug I, vibe that came in around that same time that had. I mean, of course, there had been guys that had fooled around with stuff before that, but there was a real drug vibe around '92 that I just didn't comprehend or understand or want to be a part of. What part of the country were you in around 92? I was in the South. Okay, I was in Kentucky in 92. Um, I was doing college. And, yeah. and there was another guy, there was another guy in, in my college. It's interesting because his name is Andy, and he moved back to Cincinnati. He's a really awesome artist. And he was, uh, I guess he was a few years younger than me. And I remember... Uh, I was in my dorm, and I had an Eric Resin Punk Point double kick, and uh, Indy trucks and 60 millimeter, 60 millimeter wheels on it, and uh, and he he Andy would be down there on a curb, and he was doing blunts. Yeah, you know, he was learning how to blunt stall a curb, right. and then like Mexican hat dance. It. You know how the Mexican hat dance goes. You go up, you blunt to pivot to tail and then you try and huck it into a into a smith <laughs> right so you can go front side to a to a uh, to a, a backside smith or backside to a front side you know mexican cat dancing it and and i watched him for quite some time he'd go out every day and i remember thinking first of all that i respected his tenacity i respected his discipline and i appreciated his his incremental progress mm-hmm. but um i remember thinking uh, I never want to go skateboarding and start trying like a million tries at something and finish trying a million tries and go home. It's just not my personality. It's not my temperament. It's not a moral judgment. It's not an ethical judgment. It's just not where I'm from. It's not your thing. Yeah, that was where we came what, from. That was what. That was what everyone was into. They all wanted to to, and I could kick flip. But I did kick flips enough to know that, and I ripped out all the ligaments in my front foot on a bad ollie over a trash can on you know, its side. It was on the side. And I, I dipped down and tweaked my front foot real bad, and, and I didn't like the way kick flips felt. I never liked the feeling of my front foot like that. But, uh, but I, I just really, uh, I just was super over the, the, the cultural vibe. Well, fast forward, you know, I started skating again regularly in 1996. I was only out, I was only out for a few years. Um, I also didn't like the culture of risk. I didn't like the idea of ollieing down something so big that your board would break, or ollieing down something so big that you would break. The idea of of tearing my ACL, ollieing down something, and I got married pretty young. You know, I was already had the girl. I wasn't like in the running. I wasn't doing a mating ritual with my skateboarding or 
And I also wasn't concerned with my place in society. I, I, I felt that I had an identity that transcended how good I was on my skateboard. So, so my, my skateboard was crippled by my sense of personal security and my lack of need for achievement, you know? Right. And I just did whatever felt good. I did whatever felt good, and I tended to just do really, you know, long, hard ollies at high speed and uh, had my own, you know, like just old style, just go fast, do slides and big ollies and enjoy the speed. And um, fast forward from 96 to 2005, and I got invited to rep for this brand, and that's when I began to experience the skateboard industry right from the inside, what a brand works like. And that was the kind of the early days of small brands, you know. We, we. Uh, so I was on the phone. I loved talking to Jim Gray at ABC. Jim is one of my favorite people in skateboarding of all time. He seems like I a really genuine person. Jim Gray. Yeah, I really enjoy his contributions. I follow him on Facebook, and I, I pay attention to the way he talks about the industry. I love, even when I don't agree with Jim, I love his passionate and cutting, biting, like really biting commentary on Thrasher and on the industry. And um, I just, I think that, uh, I, I just think that everyone would be better off if they listened to Jim Gray talk shit for a while. Uh, it's just, it's good for the mind, you know. And anybody that Jeff Grosso is going to heckle that hard, I want to know him. You know, that's a good <laughs> sign. You know, when Grosso Hecker, that's a person you need to get to know. So I um, I really appreciate Jeff Grosso as well. And uh, I I wish that we could get a boxing match between those guys. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone knows Grosso wouldn't survive one round. <laughs> so anyway, um, 2005 till 2006, I worked for those guys. And they uh, they kicked me out. Um, really? I just didn't mesh with their – oh, yeah, I didn't mesh with their vibe. I mean, they, they went from being in just a few shops and having a negative balance to having – they were flush with cash, and they were in seven states. And when they kicked me out, they kicked me out in a pretty, pretty, pretty harsh on me. They went radio silent for two weeks. I mean, from daily communication to total radio silent. Really? Total radio silent. Oh, tremendous people. I love these dudes. I mean, I really – they're they're the raddest. These guys rip. They create. They're they're totally totally awesome. The brand is dormant right now, but if that brand ever comes back, it, it's a really. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say the name of the brand because this story doesn't reflect completely positively on the experience. But I think that they'll understand that. Like, and they have a side of the story too. It's just that I. I know one of the scandals that happened was there was a, there was a controversy because I was being paid $500 a month working about a 50-hour week. But believe me, it didn't feel like work at all. I loved it. And I got a $100 gas stipend. But it turns out that didn't get passed through the board of the company, you know, the group. That was the owner did it unilaterally. So when it came out that I was getting paid, there was this really strong scandal that like, Nobody should get paid for working in skateboarding with this, like, real, again, I'd call it, like, 90s-era ethic where, you know, you can't get paid. If you're getting paid, then you're selling skateboarding. Then you're, you're selling out and you're I, getting paid for it. Yeah. I was so, like, it was so, like, concerned with not selling out. And at the same time, it obviously was pandering to, I mean, they get, I got three pieces of advice given to me um, by 
by uh, the art director of the company. Oh, you know, all they need to do is deny everything. So this is my opinion of my recollection of <laughs> what I feel like got told to me very clearly one time. And I'm actually a good communicator. I have a good memory, too. I got told first that you need to smoke, you need to be a cannabis smoker in skateboarding. You can't be a non-cannabis smoker, I was told. These are not stupid people. These are people who understood how it worked. Second thing you couldn't do, second thing was you needed to be a bit more of a piss drunk. I drink, but I didn't drink enough. You don't drink enough. I, I, I didn't drink enough. And then the last one was the real, this one was real. They, they actually nicknamed me Mr. Rogers, and they nicknamed me PBS Kids. And, and they had been casting slurs on me as Mr. Rogers and PBS Kids um, because, like, we'd go to a park, and in Cincinnati, their tradition is to shut down the park. So you want the, 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 the companies want around, they'll show up at the park, and then all, everyone has to stop skating because they're just barging. Because the, oh, okay, yeah. They feel like they're putting on a demo, but what they don't necessarily appreciate is that YouTube has already oversaturated our minds with how awesome things are, and the Midwest level barely approaches it. You know who's a Midwest skater who skates at a California level? Sean Malto. And guess where he lives now? California. <laughs> yep. Yep. But if I, but if escapist if escapist skate shop is going to carry boards that are made in the Midwest in a workshop, small batch, high quality, total guarantee, they're they're not gonna they're not gonna touch it because there's there's no Midwest pride, there's no sense of looking for what's creative and happening in the Midwest and coming from the Midwest. It's all about you know deriving a form of skateboarding that evokes the California style. So these guys right. have shut it down. And the big deal breaker number three thing was that Lou. Lou was um, too kid-friendly. I would come to a skate event, and I would just hold up a T-shirt and say, first kid to land three kick flips gets this T-shirt. First, I'd say, can you kick flip? And they'd all go, yeah, we can kick flip. And i go, first one of you to land three in a row gets this T-shirt. And, dude, I would be there for 25 minutes with 20 kids. And then <laughs> Brian, Brian, because, you know, they actually couldn't kick flip, you know. And every now and then I would do a kick flip. For him. And back then, I could also heel flip on command. I was, uh, that's, I was not as. I think I'm a better skateboarder today than I was back then because my trucks are way looser and I get, I get more groovy. But, yeah. um, but uh, I think about it exactly the same way. Yeah, I'm a much better skater yeah. now, but I could flip my board a lot more back then. It's I, I, I today I, uh, I, I got a, I got a message from Dan Overfield in Cleveland. Dan's one of the Fickle Boards riders, and he's in Cleveland. And Dan, man, he gets it. And he um, he said that he spent like uh, an hour or something, or he spent a whole lot of time trying to kickflip. He said he didn't make it. <laughs> and I thought, I, and this guy rides for my company because he he is the kind of rider that we have. Like he's the, he's a real person when he goes out. He makes you want to ride your board because he's encouraging and he nurtures your sense of stoke. And he's the kind of guy who gets kids to think fresh thoughts and you know so i'm 2005 2006 they canned me and i was not really that heartbroken over it because i'd already worked in churches man and if you want a relationship nightmare work in a church you know so having having worked in churches it was nothing to get two weeks of radio silence and some bad news and the owner of the right. company the owner of the company offered to retain me he said listen i'll retain you 
without telling the other members of the company. <laughs> he says, I'll retain you and you work the other six states and pretend you don't work for the company, but still be my rep in six other states. This is the kind of thinking that is pretty normal. It, you know, and, and I, I, I had to tell him, you know, I'm like, I can't work for a company that fundamentally disowns me at the core level of its relationship. So I backed out of it and I started to work for the same guy. He also had a skate park building company. Oh, wow. I became a self-employed consultant for his company. And uh, he switched the phone ring over to my – he gave me a phone and let the phone ring to my phone. It was when the iPhone first came out. I got an iPhone. It was awesome. And I got <laughs> – I got to work operations management consultant for this sick opportunity. They were doing concrete and wooden. And their guy who built wooden parks, he was a, an amazing, amazing park builder, didn't skateboard. That can't be didn't, true. It is true. This guy would design them, and then that guy would build them. And I actually got to go – one of the places that got built by that company was called Boards, Inc. in Richmond, Indiana. And I got to go into Boards, Inc. while it was being built and walk through it. And I had the honor – that park is long gone now. But I had the honor of going, that hubba is in the wrong place, dude. We need to move that hubba like now. And the owner of the company and I moved the hubba. You know, we, we <laughs> took it up and we yeah. moved it. So that it worked, uh, worked better. There was a post near it, and we needed it to be. I loved it. It was so fun. So I really appreciate this guy who ran these things. I really do did appreciate. Him. He he wound up being quite angry at me. Um, you can imagine because I I don't fit this dysfunctional model very well. I wound up betraying loyalty um, because I I was an independent consultant, you know, self-employed. Sure. Um, and uh, when the, when the checks turned to rubber, uh, I gave him two months uh, notice, and I ceased working for him on that two months notice. Uh, and I, on Mar March 14th of whatever year that was, I was done. And as soon as I was done, their customers kept calling me, asking me to help them get work done. And you said and no. I, uh, well, I, at first I said, "Yeah, I'll refer you back," and I kept trying to refer them back. But I didn't work for that company anymore. So then I started looking for other firms that could do quality work. And to be honest, these guys did really good work. And I uh, wound up calling – since I couldn't get the company to do it, I called the foreman of the company and said, listen, you can either do it with the company or you can do it yourself. But these people are going to go with American Ramp Company if you guys don't come and do it. And, um, and I was trying to keep skate parks built by skateboarder-owned and led companies. you know. But I wound up being accused – uh, horribly accused of poaching accounts and poaching uh, the, the you know poaching the the customer I, all sorts of crazy things from embezzlement to account poaching to all these untrue things got said there was a rumor that I caught wind of that I had embezzled fifty thousand dollars and uh, I thought boy <laughs> you know that's what you get for quitting like it turns right. out. That it was more about collecting a, a crew of guys and keeping them than it was about doing good work for skateboarders, you know. That was my opinion. This, again, this is my opinion of my memories. But so, but nobody talks shit, and it's time to talk about some of this shit that's everywhere. And anyway, so uh, 2005 and 2006, well, so 2007 rolled around, and I was still working for that uh, park company, and the brand brought me back. 
the, that, that brand of skateboards came. They came back to me. Billy came to me. Billy was one of the guys, ripper, lifer, awesome dude. He came to me and he's like, you know, Lou, ever since you quit, the company's just floundering, you know. And I told the guys, we need Lou back. And so they, they brought me back as long as I didn't get paid. That was the stipulation. I could be kid-friendly and I could not be drunk enough. And I could, continue, I could continue not to have a reputation as a cannabis smoker. As long as I didn't get one red cent for what I did. But the problem was, and this is how Fickle Boards got started. The problem was Brad Dorfman. Brad Dorfman. Bought ABC from Jim Gray. So from the time I was working with Jim Gray, and then they cut me off, and then they brought me back about a year and a half later. Hmm? Okay. Okay, like... So they dropped me in like 2006, and they brought me back in like later half of 2007. In 2007, I'm on the same ABC Wood from right. you know Craig Harbick is still answering the phones. Awesome dude, downhiller, friendly. I love these people. But They're Brad, so cool. I should move to California. <laughs> but Brad Having, owns the company now. Well, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't work for Brad. Well, if I worked for Brad, all I would do is walk in his office and tell him he's blowing it every morning. <laughs> and then he would, and then he'd wave like hundred dollar bills in my face, like like uh, Mayweather. <laughs> he'd have a he'd have a Mayweather he'd have a Mayweather duffel bag. You know the Mayweather duffel bag that you open yeah. up. There? Billy, there's two million dollars of cash in a duffel bag. Mayweather just carries around. <laughs> so so uh, Brad Dorfman bought ABC, and so my second round with that small board company. Same good customer service, still talking to Craig on the phone. We got this one run of boards in, and I didn't work for that company past that one run because those boards were, I mean, just, David, they were god-awful. They were just the worst. The, you step on them, and they make a clicking sound, and they were oh. floppy, you know, and you, internal D-lambs. You know, this was me. I was just beginning to learn about, like, all this shit that goes wrong with with low quality laminate and you're really seeing it because now you got what do you got maybe 50 or 100 boards over maybe three different sizes so you got maybe 33 boards that you you have and you sell 10 and you comp five and now your margins are gone and the business is tanking sure. and and i'm repping for this this company and and i wasn't a terrible skateboarder or anything and i got three skateboards and when my board got an internal delamination and began to fall apart, I would replace it and I would tell the owner of the company, I'm replacing this board because I'm not going to be out there with my low-level skating and snap a board in front of a bunch of kids. And that's what's going to happen because these things are awful. And I called up Craig at ABC and I said, Craig, booby, baby, talk to me, buddy. These boards, they're not the same. And Craig said, these boards are the same product that you had before. And I said, Craig, Craig, baby, this is me. This is Lou. Put your cheek on my cheek, baby. Talk to me. And he says, well, Brad did buy the company, and now the wood is stored in a different location. I says to him, I says, David, I said, <laughs> I says, what, what, where, where is this location? He says, it's outdoors underneath an awning. You know, like a like a thing, a pavilion or whatever. He's it's, it's outdoors. Like under somebody's carport or something. 
Exactly, exactly. And, and, and that's the mental picture I have of my memory of my opinion of what this was that I think I heard. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's no, no defamation lawsuit will stick on this conversation. So, so, so my opinion of my memory of what transpired there was I was learning that, hey, you can't store the laminate fundamental laminate in, an, in, a, in a fluctuating environment and expect to have the same kind of glue bonding because the rate of absorption from the, from the glue roller surface mm -hmm. uh, treatment to the bonding you know, is going to be different with what's at the bottom of the stack will be more moist and what's at the top and what's more sun-baked and which is on the east side, west side, south side, north side, and, all this. and you're looking and you're like, yeah, no, so the curing is off, everything's off and the boards are cracking and they were dipped, they were white dipped boards and you could see the edge cracking. You could uh -huh. see that. You could see all this cracking. And there's a joke, you know. You can hear them cracking as they're sitting there in the box, you know. <laughs> and and well, um. And now I've always heard that that dip boards, the boards that end up being dipped are the ones that you need to be wary of because they're the ones that show the most problems. I, I cover have, it up. I wound up so I wound up with that brand that I was working with. I wound up brokering them an account with South Central. Ryan Adkins runs South Central, and I find him to be a, an excellent dude and a, a, a nice guy. Answers the phone, has time to talk. A lot of these guys who run these factory outfits are really nice people, and um, I really enjoyed working with them. And I brokered a batch of samples from South Central. And the wood was, um, was it was thin, it was whippy. The samples that we got were were warpy, um, and I asked him to give me the biggest, longest board that he could do. And um, the samples came, and the uh, the guys with the brand, you know, the owner of the brand, said these will do fine, and they were on South Central from there out. Okay, and that's out of uh, Alabama. And there's a great laminate source in Alabama called Cahaba, too. The, Alabama's got some good laminate works going on down there. I like it. Um, and uh, But uh, I was a little disenchanted at that point because I didn't really like the quality I was seeing of these boards because I came up riding on Santa Cruz boards that were pressed in Milwaukee by the same uh, plywood company that presses uh, the boards for Beer City Right. For 1031 or pressed for 1031, you know, um, it's uh, there is not a there's not a workshop called Beer City. Um, Beer City is a sub branding of this of this uh, plywood company in Milwaukee, and they make an excellent excellent skateboard product. Um, another great skateboard maker is um, is uh, Watson Laminates. I mean, boards yes. of Watson Laminates. We all know we know they're they're super. Good. I've even had Watson laminate boards that have ply splicing in them that is done the worst way you can ever ply splice. And I've seen a ply splice in the tail across grain on a lengthwise ply last with a 300-pound rider on just an 8.5 popsicle board. And that 300-pound kid could ollie 18 inches high, and he <laughs> beat on that Santa Monica Airlines board. He beat on that thing and beat on it. It was already used when he got it. I became – that was part of this whole period where I started to just, hey, where can I find a good-feeling, long-lasting skateboard like back in the day? Right. And I saw boards like that Santa Monica Airline, and God bless Skip Englum right now, dude. That guy is just 
we he's just a super character in the history of skateboarding and he's still running sma mm-hmm. old school small batch and he's tight with watson that's a great brand to yeah. buy a board. bulldog skates they do all their stuff on, on watson well, yeah I don't even I don't even own a bulldog skates and I should I should have a collection and I got bupkis because I skate everything I buy and I'm a kind of a nerd that yeah way. I've I've owned a bunch of bulldogs but oh. they're all gone now because are they expensive they're way expensive I mean you're looking good at, good for them well it keeps me off of them though because I just yeah hundred bucks I can't do it. To tell you the truth, I, I see in the future of, of fickle boards. I do see that you know now. Now I'm getting um, per month easily twenty percent to thirty percent. You know, like a third of my orders are people who you know now people want wheel wells in their boards, and I don't even charge up. All I ask for is time. But I, I know that the days will come when you know we'll have a much better organized pricing structure, and you, there will be boards that cost out. Oh, I had a guy who wanted wheel wells, and he's a great customer and a great friend as well. Hello, Joe. Um, <laughs> love it. Um, and he wanted wheel wells, and his board, with, I was charging for all the custom stuff, his board priced out at like $103. And I changed, I changed after that, and I actually just started doing flat $70 for every board that goes out of here with grip um, and That's- stickers. That's shipped too, right? That's shipped, yes. Yeah. $70 flat rate ship because I just, hey, I just want to make boards for people who destroy them. And I'm not very good on time. I, it takes me a lot longer to fill these orders than I thought it would. But I'll get into the reasons why later. They're actually more, um, have to do with more existential crises um, and, and some of the, the struggles I've, I've been in the last couple of years. Because the last couple of years I've actually had to fight to be a business. Um, and had to had to deal with some really uh, intense stuff. We might talk about it another time. But long and short of how Fickle got started, it was at this time I now had done two rounds with a small company, and I'd seen the, the potential for a small company to to really inspire. You know, I really like kids, but I also like um, I, I basically like all the missing pieces. I, I, I like when kids are riding and having fun. I like to hear laughter. I don't hear a lot of laughter at the skate parks anymore. Really, I don't. Um, I like to I like to see um, girls riding skateboards because that tells me something's healthy in the community. Yeah. I, I like to see uh, uh, you know at least a representative diversity. You know, like if we're in an area of the world where there's different kinds, colors, types, and sorts of people, I like to see at the skate park different kinds, colors, types, and sorts of people. When I when I go to a skateboarding place. And all I see are thin, athletic, similarly dressed, young men. And they take a group picture, and all the way over on the one side, there's a girl. And she's never unattractive, you know. I just look and I say, you know, that's, that's a picture of a community that for all of the things we can appreciate about it, we need to critique its lack of diversity. And I, I can't help but suspect and often crit- criticize that skateboarding just got too cool for, yeah. kids, for kids who are smart enough to recognize they don't want to deal with that bullshit. Absolutely. That's yeah. one of the great things about the Memphis scene is you see that yeah. diversity there. You make me cry. I love Memphis so much. All, those, all the <laughs> Memphis people, they just get it. You got well, you know what they got around Memphis is they got the Hernando guys, especially Absolutely. Chad. Ed. 
Edward Pigeon is like, he's like a, a super enforcer. And um, Edward, I've asked Edward if he would, uh, if he would be involved with Fickle Skateboards as a rider, because um, he is an example of who I think uh, makes more skateboarders and makes more skateboarders better people while they're skateboarding. Absolutely. Yeah, man, it's dope. But, you know, you talk like that over here in Cincinnati, um, and uh, we don't have an Edward Pigeon. We've got a Lou Ross, and he's only one. (laughs) Lou Ross is only one guy. And uh, if if I were an Edward Pigeon over here, there isn't a Chad Crawford. Yeah, we don't have the higher the muscle. Chad's the muscle. <laughs> <laughs> Although that Ed Pigeon, have you ever had him? Oh, and you, you ever hear? Him? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I love when he's like when Ed Pigeon goes, "I'll, I'll, I'll kill you. I'll make you disappear, motherfucker." <laughs> <laughs> oh, you sound just like that. That's all it is. Oh, dude, I've got a kick-ass Ed Pigeon, boys. I can do a whole interview. <laughs> That's totally it. That's all. That's because I'm a fan. That's I'm a fan of Ed Pigeon. Anyway, I'm not be a fan of Ed Pigeon. Well, back to our mutton. This is the thing: is I, from the time I first started in '86, the boards, man. I used to look at that board when I was. It was right next to my bed, dude. It was the boards, man. Your wheels would wear out. Your bearings would rust or get bad. Your trucks. I would bend trucks when I was younger, but the boards man the deck you get a deck and you try it out i remember the disappointment i had one christmas i got a tom knox the santa cruz tom knox with that crazy cruise missile action going on had a huge tail and a tiny nose on it and it had all these seven degree and 12 degree and three degrees in its concave it looked like an origami you know and i remembered it didn't want to ollie because it was rockered in the back and I, I loved Tom Knox, and I loved Matt Hensley, and I loved the Rubber Boys on Public Domain and could never stand anything else that Powell Peralta did. <laughs> I still, to this day, have never finished watching Animal Chin. I can't. Really? Oh, I, skateboarders, I love you all, and I love that you love that. But I can't well, see, do I it, man. I, I mean, everybody knows it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> but that's one of the reasons why you love it. You know what? So I think bad. it had to do it had to do with living in New York and having like okay, so I was a I was not a uh, okay, I, my family, you can tell my family was was educated. Um they really believed in education and working hard and going to college. And I really am grateful for my family, but one thing my family didn't do was buy things. They that we lived real tight. Like, I didn't get Star Wars figures, man. It was tough to have Star Wars happen <laughs> and not be able to have Star Wars. I got I got Star Wars figures, but only uh, one or two, and only was, on a birthday, you know. it was. See, my, I'm, I, I'm just the opposite. I had Star Wars figures. I've never seen Star Wars. Oh, dude, I love it. I love a dichotomy. <laughs> I had the figures. I played with them. I, like, I knew the, most of their names. Some of them I didn't know, but I never actually watched it. Well, I skateboarded from 1986. I started in 85. I skateboarded in 1985 um, for months and months when I first started. I learned a tic-tac. I learned a 360. And I was learning on a neighborhood street that had these asphalt curbs that had a – they were about 11, 10 or 11 inches tall 
with a slant. Yeah. The top of the curb, the top profile was was uh, two inch wide. So I would ride, go fast, and I would ride up onto the curb and down, up onto the curb and down, up onto the curb and down. And then I would go straight at the curb. I would go up and pivot the back truck on the top of it and down. And then I started to catch a drag. When I would go up onto the curb, go along, my back truck would drag. And I would put on the asphalt first two inches, then four inches, then eight inches, then 12 inch long gouges into the top of the asphalt. And then I started to have places where the, 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 the road curved outward and I could really get a drag on it. Mm-hmm. And I was doing these truck drags by <laughs> flapping my board. Truck drags. Up. I was doing these slap up truck drags on this and I got real worried because my back truck and my front truck started to develop this wear pattern. I was afraid I was ruining them because they got wear. The metal metal of the trucks, dude, actually started to wear away. (laughs) That's awesome. And so I tightened my bushings really tight and I I started doing all the (laughs) truck drags. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and and I learned how to I learned how to tick I learned how to tic tac up Tony Cavaluzzi's driveway. Tony Cavaluzzi, if you're here listening to this, love you, dude. We should get together and watch Rambo again. And um, and that was when the flea market started carrying the Rambo knife, where you would open the back of the knife. That was those years. So so uh, I was I was having a blast riding my skateboard for months and months. And then my friend, I think it was Peter Powers. He says to me, um, I loved Peter Powers. I was the kid that you don't really love, you know, but I, I just was, and I was lonely. I lived, I lived a little further out than everyone else did. Yeah, you know? yeah. Peter was the, Peter was the funniest dude. He, I bet he's hilarious now. And, um, and, uh, he, I hope he's alive and well, but, um, he showed me tic-tacking, and I learned how to tic-tac up the steepest driveway, Tony Cavaluzzi's driveway and Peter Powers' driveway, and I learned it. And then Peter said, you got to come to this demo. And this demo at uh, Best Cycle and Sports, that was our skateboard shop. They had a little skateboard area in the awesome. bike shop. Yeah. yeah, that was when it was good, that was, man. That was the way it was back then. Yeah. That was the way it was, and we would congregate. And they had a sponsored team, and here's a funny thing. The guys on the sponsored team – Went to Ketchum High School, a lot of them did. And uh, they were on the football team at the high school. I, I, I didn't put it together, but the really? sponsor team riders, yeah, the sponsor team riders that year had some real rippers on it. And they were high schoolers. And I remember uh, I, was, I was a punker. And I was listening to the Dead Kennedys. And I was really mad that. Like if if I felt like you had to measure up to be included, I got angry early on. I did not like. I've always been an iconoclast, you know. If you have to perform in order to be included, then that's a system that that in my opinion can't work because a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Yeah? Absolutely. So healthy communities encourage, nurture, and strengthen the less talented the less gifted, the less good at it. When a community or a culture marginalizes the weak, they ruin – those people, you've marginalized them, but they're still part of your chain. 
Right. And so there's still the thing is you may have kicked them out, but in 20 years they're going to be telling stories about how you behaved. And Absolutely, motherfucker. They're going to be t- motherfucker. They're going to be telling. <laughs> They're going to be telling stories about you. <laughs> and and this is what we don't understand is that that kid that you didn't include in your skateboarding stoke because he wasn't good enough or is he was wearing, oh, I'll never forget it. When I worked for that skateboard brand here in Cincinnati, we had a rider and it was explained to me, this kid is never going anywhere. And I said, why? And they said, look at his pants. I said, what are we talking about? He was wearing cargo pants in 2006. And they said, he's a ripper, yada, yada. But if you're wearing cargo pants, are you kidding? Oh, I'm not kidding, dude. This is like, I mean, I am not playing. I'm not building a straw man, David Thornton. These, <laughs> these ideas, I, I want to tell you that there's a, there's a, a place I go online where I will find the funniest quotes. I have found quotes like, get that money and come correct or don't come at all. And it's lonely at the top. You know, there are skateboarding personalities who feed me some of the core distillations, the best articulations of what America's skateboarding industry based in the shop and retail and about two years ago, I started to say, it's time to question authority, especially retail authority, because these guys, for all their good intentions and all the good things they tell us that they do, and for all the pictures they're going to show us of uh-huh. nothing but athletic, thin men, you know, yeah. no diversity, for all that, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it when the only girls who can skate and hang with it are either hot girls or fucking mean girls. You know, you got to be hot or you got to be mean. That's what it takes to be a girl in skateboarding around this area. Uh, These are not straw men, dude. This is real. But I've been really gratified. I watched one Facebooker pull every, every open drug reference that he used to do. He pulled it all off of there. And he pulled off. A whole bunch of stuff. He went back four and a half years. And I I checked it, dude. One of our local leader dudes went and he sanitized his Facebook. And I thought, that is sick. They're not bullying people openly anymore. Because if they bully a kid in this area, I'll write a freaking Facebook post about you. you." (laughs) (laughs) You know, because back to our original, like 15, 20 minutes ago, we were musing about a click, three clicks deep on my Facebook page was able to get someone at a, get a publisher, editor to be pissed at a writer in, in, a, in a, an online magazine. Right. And the reason that is true is because the real media that people are learning about the world through is social media. And self-publishing is reaching tens of thousands of people yes. more more effectively. So one Facebook post that really packs a punch and really says something and gets people talking can, you know, they say the pen is mightier than the sword. And I think that, I think that saying the things that need to be said is mightier than, you know, uh, I don't know if you're afraid of the Olympics or if you're afraid of Nike or if you're afraid, I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of sameness. I'm afraid of everyone being the same. And so we end part two of my talk with Lou. Hope you're looking forward to part three of our conversation next week. 
Thanks for joining me.